0: Saint Dominic. Pray for us. Saint Francis. Pray for us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The title that I was given for the weekend uh, was The Blessed Mother, Cause of Our Joy. The interesting thing was uh, the sisters, when I arrived, asked me what I was going to speak about, and I had said, Well, the title that you gave me, and they said, Well, what was that? <laughs> So it's not clear where this came from, but apparently that is what the Blessed Mother would have us reflect upon. So we'll take our best shot. It's an interesting and an ancient expression, the cause of our joy. It's a title that we rarely hear in our present age, much like many of the titles of Our Lady. And so why don't we begin just reflecting on that for a moment. I'm sure everyone here is familiar, at least superficially, with the Litany of Loretto, the Litany of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And that litany is not simply a listing of titles of Our Lady. It is not simply a listing of descriptions of Our Lady. It is a way of naming Our Lady. Note that each of the invocations where we call upon a title of Our Lady is followed by the words, Pray for us. We're not simply naming descriptions, we're speaking to a person. And we are naming that person in each of these diverse ways. And each of these beautiful expressions is another way of understanding. Mary, what it means to say, Mary. And it's also then only fitting that we began our time with that very simple prayer, which is Hail Mary. So one of the things that we are focusing on then with this title, Cause of Our Joy, is not something about Our Lady, but who Our Lady really is. She, in fact, is the cause of our joy. In an earlier day, one of the most common ways of teaching, communicating, and spiritually imparting a solid devotion to Our Lady was a very curious but beautiful practice um, where it seemed like a Marian preacher didn't arrive until he wrote one of these. And uh, the works were var- had various titles, but they're typically around the idea of a Marian month. And so the books were often written with regard to the 31 days of the month of May. And over the 31 days, the series of reflections on Our Lady would roughly follow and correspond to and unpack the different namings of Our Lady from the litany. And so there would be a day dedicated to cause of our joy, another day dedicated to Tower of Ivory, another day dedicated to Gate of Heaven, Vessel of Devotion, Mother of God, Queen of Virgins. What an interesting idea to take the litany And to take those various namings and over time to systematically pray through them and unpack them. So the effect was a month-long litany where each day was given to one or maybe two of the titles. What a beautiful idea that is. This reminder, because what happens when we pray litanies? We're often quick, aren't we? And we go through, and there's a certain breathlessness if we're not careful. Litanies should be prayed slowly, which is why they were originally chanted. Because it required a measured pacing, where one had to at least consider for a few seconds what it was that one was saying. And there would be this marvelous flowing of one mental picture One way of naming Our Lady that led naturally to another. So there'd be this cumulatively beautiful effect at the end of, in a sense, the overwhelming goodness that can be found in Our Lady. Other titles will creep into our reflections over the weekend, but again, we're going to spend some time focusing ourselves primarily on one. Cause. And again, it should go without saying for all of us here that, of course, Jesus Christ is the cause of our joy. And so anything that we say about Our Lady is at the service of what it means to identify Jesus in that sense as the deep and abiding joy of our hearts. But that begs a question. What is your joy? Don't be too quick to answer that. You know, we're at, we're here at Casa Maria, we're on a retreat, we're all committed Catholics, and so the automatic answer that wants to come out, because we're good catechism students, is, well, of course, Jesus is my joy. But let's be careful and let's not be so quick. Because the reality is we're also sinners. At least I am. If you're not a sinner, I'm not sure uh, why you're listening to me. (laughs) I should be in the chair listening to you. Um, Because of our sinful hearts, we often seek to find our joy, our fulfillment, and our consolation in other places too, don't we? There are those moments when we're frustrated, when we're angry, when we're exhausted, and we reach out our hand to something that we hope will satisfy us, and it's often not Jesus. Jesus. And so this idea that Our Lady is the cause of our joy raises several questions right in the words. First, our joy. Meaning that it's not merely a personal joy. Not merely a personal satisfaction, but something that is shared. Our joy. Whose joy? On the one hand, it's the joy of the church. On the one hand, it's the joy of those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, it is the joy of all mankind. It is the joy, even more so, of all creation. The cause of our joy. And the minute we recognize just who the hour is and how expansive that word is, we get a sense that we're not talking about something that just makes us happy. That whatever this joy is that touches the entirety of the human race, this joy that touches not my life but yours, this joy that doesn't diminish even though many of us share it. This joy that in some wonderful way is a joy that all of creation itself is touched by and shares can be no small thing. It can be no insignificant. And then there's that word joy. What is that? It doesn't mean Happiness, okay? That is not what we're talking about this weekend. We are not talking about how to be happy. Joy is something different. Happiness is passing. Happiness depends on situations. Things make us happy, moments make us happy. And then they pass and we're not happy anymore, right? You've all had the experience of having a pretty good day where you're reasonably happy and something stupid happens out of nowhere. And all of a sudden, you're not happy, you're upset. Okay? Joy remains even when we are not happy. And it's important to recognize that. When we speak of joy, especially in a Christian sense, We are speaking about something abiding and something deep. We're not speaking about something shallow that is merely a feeling. Joy involves feeling, but it is more than that. Joy involves the possession of something permanent, abiding and lasting. Happiness is fleeting, we all know that. But right away then, how many do we know, how many of us perhaps have said, what I really want is to be happy? And what happens? We end up chasing a good feeling. And how much pain has been caused in our world by the reaching after a good feeling? It's not that good feelings are bad things, but they're brief, they're transient they don't last. And so we need to qualify our words with, I need lasting happiness, because most of the happiness I know doesn't last very long. And So we're not speaking simply about happiness. We're not speaking about those little things that please us. We're speaking about something which is with us even when we are displeased you know that's a that's very important because our fractious and rebellious human hearts like to have their own way don't they our fractious and rebellious human hearts shy away from that which is inconvenient and it happens even in our best of things It can happen that when one has given himself to the service of the church and feels that his mission or his vocational energy goes in this direction and his superiors say, not right now, it won't. If happiness is the issue and I'm unhappy with the decision, my vocation's also in crisis. And I become a bitter religious I become a bitter servant, a bitter husband, a bitter wife. It happens. If, however, the joy in my relationship with Christ is a deeper thing, even if what I am doing is not immediately satisfying, not immediately fulfilling, not immediately pleasant, I am still a joyful husband, still a joyful priest, still a joyful religious, even though in the moment I may not be at my happiest. You see the difference? And what a difference that makes. In a sense, then, this idea that there is a joy that has this kind of power, this kind of depth, this kind of abiding character, and that we can share it, now that should be attractive. That should very much be attractive. And the next question is, how do I get it? And nope, we have the answer. The Blessed Virgin Mary, cause of our joy. And so this, title of Our Lady, is not merely an abstract idea to be reflected upon. It is saying something vitally important, that if we desire the full joy of the gospel in our lives, there's a source. There's an avenue that we can move along to grow into its fullness, And so this is not just a matter of what does that name mean. It also means then, how is Our Lady the cause of that joy in my heart, in my life, in my vocation, whatever that is. Kind of anticipating ideas that will sound out in the conferences through the weekend, This title, Cause of Our Joy, traditionally has three aspects to it. One, why is Our Lady the cause of our joy? One, because Jesus Christ comes into the world through Mary. And one would say, well, Father, what else do we need? Note, we need a little bit more because our temptation is to reduce that to a past tense. Mary we call the cause of our joy not just because of something that happened in the past, but also because the Lord continues to give us his grace through her, even today. And so we recognize not just what has happened, but what continues to happen. But third, in calling Our Lady the cause of our joy, the church also recognizes the active agency of Our Lady in our lives. She is not simply the vessel through which graces flow to us. She is that one who intercedes for you. She is that one who turns toward heaven and asks for your forgiveness. She is that one whom we invoke in the Hail Mary to pray for us when now and at the hour of our death, when we desire to enter the everlasting joy of heaven. Cause of our joy. Three aspects. The Lord has come through Our Lady. The Lord continues to give us his graces through Our Lady, and Our Lady actively intercedes on our behalf that we poor and fallen sinners be not lost and be not abandoned, but be forgiven, graced, and received into the joy of eternal blessedness. So now let's look at the very beginning of things. Because if we're going to talk about Our Lady as the cause of our joy, that's where we got to start. Because the simple fact of the matter is, why would we need joy unless We didn't have it. You know, as obvious as that is, it's something that's easily overlooked. And so you all know the story, right? The Lord, the dust of the earth, Adam, a garden he planted. You all know this one, right? We've heard it so many times, and yet it always repays another reading. It always repays another visit, these first several chapters of the book of Genesis. For what do we see after the Lord has made man? He settles him in the garden, the garden of Eden, the garden of blessing, the garden that is paradise. And what is paradise? Paradise. The place of abiding joy. And so if we speak about the original state of man, we are speaking about a very real original joy. Because man is surrounded by all of the good that God has made. And what does Genesis say? He found it very, very good. Again, that curious extra superlative in the scriptures indicating that there is a goodness here that goes beyond what we know in our fallen world, a perfection, a harmony, a manifestation of the goodness of the creator that's more muted, more obscured in our fallen world. And in the middle of everything that was very good, man is born into joy. And that is where he is settled and given to dwell. And the first lesson that we learn is joy is hard to hold on to. And if we are not careful, we are easily robbed of it. Let's go back to that example of your good day that suddenly went bad. Note how easy it is for you to lose your peace. Note how easy it is for you to lose your calm. Note how easy it is for you to lose your sense of communion with the Lord. It happens. We are so readily deceived, so readily knocked off center, and goodness is often rudely snatched from our hands. And So what do we see in the book of Genesis? The same thing. At some point, man becomes inattentive to the joy in which he is living. He stops paying attention. And when we stop paying attention, there's room for the serpent to speak. And the serpent does speak. And at any point, at any point in that third chapter of the book of Genesis, Eve could have walked away from the serpent, or Adam could have defended her and told the snake to just shut up. And nothing happens. The man and the woman made by God and given communion with one another stand at the tree, and even as the snake asks them about God, they never turn to him. They know the rule. But the rule has become a lifeless word in their heart that doesn't continue to speak, it's just a memory. They're not listening to the Lord. They're listening to the serpent. And the idea is the serpent is beginning to surface within. Joy must be appreciated, if it is to be kept. And so the moment comes... When the serpent introduces a sense of inadequacy, a sense of incompleteness, a sense of lack into the man and the woman who literally have everything. How amazing to be surrounded by all of the blessings that the Lord has made, and all you got to do is reach out your hand and find yourself convinced that you don't have enough. And here, Rather than turning to the Lord with their sense of need, they seek to satisfy it on their own. Note, the original joy is a gift, not an achievement. The original joy into which the human race was born is something that is given to man, not something that man acquires for. What do we see? The grasping hand of man stretches out to take for himself on his own terms what he decides will fulfill him. And how often in the course of any of our lives does any one of us repeat that gesture? We stretch out our hands to what we think will fulfill us to what we think will satisfy us, to what we think will complete us on our own terms. And how often do we go wrong? And so note, man who has been given joy becomes discontented. And in his discontent, he reaches out where he knows he shouldn't. But notice that in the middle of all of this, he never turns once to the Lord. In the Byzantine liturgical tradition, there's a marvelous iconographic depiction of what happens in the garden. And it's unusual for an icon in that it's a circular icon that tells the story in four different images as opposed to one. And in the first image is the Lord making Adam from the dirt. And in the next, Adam and Eve are settled in the garden, and they have halos. And they're not shown as naked, they're shown as clothed in sumptuous garments. And it's a sign of that original garment of joy, blessing, and virtue that the human race was given. And in the next panel, Adam and Eve are there in their sumptuous garments, but they're missing their halos because they're standing next to the tree and the snake is already whispering in Eve's ear. And she listens. And in the listening, in the indulging of the temptation, in the accepting of the idea that something other than the Lord can complete me and fulfill me, the original sanctity is already lost. And then finally we see them being driven out of, the e- out of the garden, and now they're naked. Now they've lost that garment of joy, that garment of blessing, that garment of virtue that was theirs from the beginning. Out into the world unclothed and unprotected in a certain sense, because they lack that garment of virtue, which is man's real protection. What an interesting and beautiful idea that is. But as all of this happens, as Eve stretches out to the to the tree and takes the fruit and eats it, as she gives some to her husband, whom scripture very carefully says was there with her. And so note, the dope stood by the tree and didn't stop her from doing anything. Eve is aggressive, And Adam is passive. He's there, but he lets it happen. And so note that we see in the couple here, the husband and the wife, we see both sides of human weakness. Thoughtless aggressiveness and passivity that doesn't move. But underlying both of them is the fact that There has been no listening to the Lord through all of this. And so finally, their eyes are open and they see that they now have problems. In addition to the guilt, they are now no longer happy. They are now no longer joyful. They are now no longer at peace. The joyless heart is a frightened heart. The joyless heart is a guilt-ridden heart. The joyless heart is a regretful heart. The joyless heart is a mistrustful heart. These are all the things we see. And beautifully, as soon as all of this happens, the Lord comes. And the first divine response to the first human sin, is that God comes to seek the sinner. But what do they do? They hide. Those times when you were little and got in trouble and you hid behind the couch or in the closet? This is how far back that goes. (coughs) But note, now there's no trust of the Lord. And so fear and guilt take place. Over. We already have moved into a joyless living. And as God, you all know the story, as God gives Adam multiple chances to repent and Adam stays hidden, finally the Lord confronts him and says, the only reason you're this way is you did what you were not supposed to do. And What does Adam say? No, he tells God it's his fault. The woman that you gave me If you left my rib alone, we'd be okay. (laughs) But note what he says. The woman that you gave me. Pay attention to those words. The woman that you gave me. Because on these words, on these words very much is going to turn because what do we see eve was given to adam and by god to be his helpmeet, to be his support and eve takes the fruit and gives it to her husband and that's on eve and adam didn't defend his wife and adam took the fruit and that's on him but note how there's something here the woman That you gave me. Now, on the one hand, this is Adam denying his own guilt. This is the first time anybody ever said, sorry, not sorry. (laughs) Because what does Adam say? You're right, I did it. But it's not my fault. When we choose the lie of innocence over real forgiveness, we cut ourselves off from joy because we choose to live with guilt. We don't publicly admit it, but that's all we're left with. The only way to get rid of the guilt is to apologize. And note here, man refuses to return to joy. Man who will now spend the rest of his history saying, I just want to be happy has the opportunity to return to the joy of communion with God. But he prefers the mask of his own false innocence. It's not my fault. To the truth of reconciliation. Joy, real joy, can never live on falsehood. Adam wants the false joy of appearing competent, capable, and innocent over the real joy of being guiltless. What a remarkable moment that is. And at this point, at this point, what do we see but that the man and the woman have a joyless life to pass on to their children? They have lost paradise. They are going to be expelled into a world where they will know hardship and sorrow, and left on their own, there will be no hope for them. Let's just be clear about this. At this point, Adam's future is an open grave, and on the other side of that grave is not heaven. Let's just be clear about that. And so if the story ends here, with the refusal of Adam and Eve to be reconciled with the Lord, there is no hope for man. And that's the truth. Whatever goodness remains is a broken goodness insufficient to grant them lasting happiness. But the Lord isn't content to let Adam make the decisions, or Eve, We've seen how well they do. And so the Lord turns to the snake in speaking to the author of all of this. The Lord turns to the snake. And what does he do? He says he is going to give us another woman. I will put enmity between you And the woman. Note what Adam said? The woman that you gave me? The Lord now speaks of another woman that he's going to give. A woman who will not be a friend of the snake. He's not talking about Eve. Eve has already lost. Eve has been and will continue in a certain level to cooperate with the snake. There's an element of her now that is friendly with the snake. She's surrendered to temptation. She's been overcome. The Lord is speaking of another woman. Another woman that he's going to give Adam. Adam will have a daughter. There will be a woman. And that woman will be opposed to the serpent totally completely thoroughly unrelentingly opposed to the serpent and the serpent will be opposed to her how interesting into the joyless future of fallen man the lord says i will give you a woman where the serpent is proud she will be humble where the serpent is disobedient she will be obedient. Where the serpent is hate-filled and venomous, she will be grace-filled and peaceful, a sinless one. And from this woman, there will be a son. And through the woman and her son, the head of the serpent will be broken. Note what the Lord does at the very beginning. This verse from Genesis, Genesis 3, verse 15. Long called the gospel before the gospels by the fathers of the church. This announcement of salvation directly into the tragedy of sin. You have lost. And yet, nothing. You have fallen. And yet, there is hope. You blame the woman that I gave you, but I will give a woman. And from this woman there will not be sin, but blessing. There will not be death, but life. There will not be sorrow, but joy. Note that when the Lord announces there will be a victory and there will be salvation and there will be a savior, it is all done in the context of a woman because of our joy. How beautiful is that? How remarkable is that? And to demonstrate the power of that word, When the Lord expels Adam and Eve from the garden, here's a quick quiz for you. What direction do they go in? East. And what comes up in the east? He sends them in the direction of salvation. Out to the east. And so even as they are expelled from the garden, they are expelled with momentum in the direction from which salvation will become. And from that great East in the heart of God, there will come a woman. How beautiful is that? Cause of our joy. Because again, the great joy of the Christian heart is Jesus Christ. But to appreciate this joy on our fallen side of eternity, We have to linger in this first conference. We have to linger a moment with what it means to be joyless so as to understand what it is that we are looking for, to understand just how great this is. This is not merely good feeling. This is not merely peace of heart. This is something much greater than that. This is the joy of a fallen heart being sought and found and saved and snatched away from the grasp of death into the goodness of life. That's the joy we're talking about. It's the joy of a slave whose chains fall away and is given freedom. That's the joy we're talking about. It's the joy of one who has been racked with guilt and with pain and who receives now forgiveness and healing. That's the joy we're talking about. And so as deep as the wound in the human heart is, as deep as the brokenness in the human spirit has become, this is a joy that is deeper, stronger, and greater. What a remarkable, what a remarkable thing this is. And this idea then, this insight, will run through the rest of Scripture. You know, the the great command of St. Paul to the church, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. And what does that mean? Be conscious of what the Lord has done for you. But the greatest joy is not what the Lord has done, but that the Lord has come, that the Lord is with us. And so it is then at the very fullness of time, we come and we look at the woman that God has given us. And think about that for a second. Because you can say with Adam, this is the woman that you gave. All mankind can look at her and say, this is the woman that you gave me. Not just us, but that you gave. And in the fullness of time, when the Lord is to come into the world, the angel Gabriel is sent from heaven and he greets the woman with a greeting that means rejoice. Hail is not hello. There's a note of joyful news in the tone of the greeting. Rejoice. Rejoice. The word is said to the woman, but this is a new rejoicing come into the world. A rejoicing now that brings to the world that rejoicing that was promised by Isaiah. Every year on Christmas Eve, we hear it. For unto us a child has been born, a son has been given us, right? And on that day, men will rejoice as those who have won a victory over their enemy and have spoil to count. There will be joy as in a victory. There will be joy as in the end of hostility. There will be joy in the birth of a son. Gabriel comes to Mary. Rejoice. Hail, O favored one. And why should she rejoice? Because the Lord is with you. That is the most simple biblical definition of joy that there can be. The Lord is with you. And the response to that is rejoicing. Be joyful. The Lord is with you. And so now... Even as the Lord is about to become flesh, note, the first tone sounded on his arrival is the tone of joyfulness. For now God will be with us. In becoming incarnate of Our Lady, the Lord is not just with her alone. He is now in the world and with us. We may not realize it but he is with us. Cause of our joy. And the scriptures continue in this way. As soon as our Lord is present, our lady gets up and goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. And as soon as her greeting sounds in the ear of her cousin, the child in her womb leaps for, say it with me, joy. But again, note who physically moves, Our Lady. The Lord arrives in that house by means of the woman that he has given us. And when the lady, when the woman arrives, her voice speaks. And in that voice is mysteriously the touch of her son. And on feeling that touch, the unborn infant in Elizabeth's womb responds with joy. The Lord is here. The Lord is near. The Lord has come. Joy. Now I'm pausing for a second just because don't we just take the presence of the Lord for granted sometimes? And yet, note this unrelenting emphasis on the joy that is produced when he is with us. Now, the interesting thing is he's always with us. The problem is we're not with him. And so there's this moment of when man finally recognizes that God is here, there's only two movements. One is the frightened hiding of guilt-ridden Adam in the garden, and the other is the joy that we see in unborn John the Baptist. Thrilled that the one I have been longing for, the one I have been waiting for, has at last drawn near and on that night several months later when the lord has come to bethlehem and has been born and wrapped in swaddling bands and placed in a manger and the angel comes to the shepherds what does the angel say but i give you tidings of great joy <coughs> For a Savior has been born unto you, who is Christ the Lord. He is with us. But now, there's something new here. We said our joy, right? That's the joy of heaven, too. For the first time, look at what happens Jesus is born. And the newborn Christ opens his eyes and sees Our Lady and gazes out on the world. And the angelic host in heaven looks down on earth and for the very first time sees the very word of God whom they adore in heaven, gazing upward back at them. And what happens? But the joy of heaven spills over down into earth as the angels sing the birth of the Savior. That's not just the angels singing for us. They are proclaiming the greatness and the glory of God. They're rejoicing. They are rejoicing in the presence of Christ, born into this world. Every time we sing that marvelous song, glory to God in the highest at mass, we have the echo of the joy of the angels in our hearts and in our voices, if we are attentive to that. Because that hymn comes from that night. Sound at first, not by earthly voices, but by angelic voices. And built into the liturgy of the church when it celebrates what God has done is the joy of heaven on that night where the Savior first shows his face to the world in the arms of the Virgin Mary. Cause of our joy. How are we doing on time? Note what we've just covered this evening. It's not just a look at Our Lady's role in salvation history, but this consideration of the joy of the presence of God reaches out to us through Mary, with Mary, in Mary, and by Mary. That man, Adam, who lost his joy, in the Garden of Eden, and his explanation is it's because of the woman that God gave him, is now going to be restored to joy by means of a daughter whom God has given him. For through her, that one who is indeed the very joy of the world will come and will save us. Salvation comes through Mary because Jesus comes through Mary. Forgiveness and mercy come through Mary because Jesus comes through Mary. Cause of our joy. And who has given her this role? No man. Who has given her this role? No papal document. Who has given her this role? God himself, when he looked at the fallen, joyless, and grieving heart of Adam and chose not to leave him joyless, not to leave him hopeless, not to leave him merely a prisoner of his grief, but chose to give him the joy of salvation, even though Adam turned his back on it, This is the next thing. How many times in your life did you have the opportunity to be peaceful and you turned away from it? How many times in your life did you have the opportunity to apologize and you didn't? How many times in your life did you have the opportunity to lay aside resentment, anger, guilt, and you chose not to, for whatever reason. Sometimes it's stubbornness. Sometimes it's pride. Sometimes it's proud stubbornness or stubborn pride. Sometimes it's just simply, I can't abide this person. But it happens, doesn't it? You know, one of the curious things about us is how often our hearts turn away from what it is they say they most desire, just like Adam did in the garden. The only way his wound could be healed was by turning to the Lord and being reconciled. But he didn't. He turned away. And the Lord's answer was, even though you don't think you want it, I am going to give you the joy of forgiveness and the goodness of salvation. Even though you think you can't accept it, I am going to give it. How will I give it? through the woman that I will give you. Why, Mary? Because in no small measure, my guilt-ridden, weak heart turns away from joy on a regular basis. And I need help to meet it and to receive it. And so to a world which turned its back on joy, the Lord gives first the woman. She receives the joy of his presence, on behalf of all of us. And from her, we who on our own cannot fully open are given to meet him, given to know him, and given to receive him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.